John, did anything bad happen in the last week? Did, did like the world end, or did any other negativity or, or horrible result happen in the last week? I'm sure horrible things happened everywhere in the last week. Well, did anything happen like to our show that was really horrible? Oh, uh, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Uh, because uh, what was missing from last episode? This, the song was there. <laughs> Did you forget the modem thing in the beginning? <laughs> no. John, John, John. Show notes? Nope, that was there too. Keep trying. What, did, what, did, what was just completely missing from last episode? Any mention of the thing that I was most excited about at WWDC? No, no. Are you talking about like the release show, like the production process has fallen down? Oh my God, John. How do I? How have I figured this out and you haven't? I don't know. I just listened to the most recent episode. It had a song. Uh, I guess it had the modem beep. Did it have the ending noise? Yeah. We'll just sit here patiently. I don't know. All the ads? No, those are there too. <laughs> All right, well, I guess we should do something uh, up front in the show. Uh, oh, because you didn't have follow-up for WWC? <laughs> there we, we go. We never do. We never have follow-up at WWC show. <laughs> Because we always have so much to talk about. We haven't had it on any of the WWDC shows. Like, where would I get it from, especially when we were live? I don't have notes in front of me. Oh, come now, John. We always have something to follow up on. Did we when we were in Macworld last year? No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe some, <laughs> someone can look it up and see. But, like, certainly I didn't have a laptop in front of me, right? No, you just had a tremendous wallet. <laughs> no, I mean, like, last year at the Macworld uh, studio. Yeah, you still had a tremendous wallet, I'm quite sure. I don't know. Might not have been with me. Hey, um, speaking of wallets, and uh, now we can segue into the follow-up that Marco's trying to avoid. We all went to dinner at, a, at our dear friend uh, Jason Snell's house, and we left that house, we left Jason's house, and got onto the interstate highway, freeway, whatever California calls it, and then you had an epiphany, John. Would you like to tell us what that epiphany was? I left my backpack at Jason's house. And somebody pointed out to me, I don't, I genuinely don't remember who it was. And so I'm sorry to whomever that is, uh, that at two minutes, or excuse me, two hours, two minutes and 45 seconds, you explained to us in the last episode how you would never lose your backpack. Did I lose my backpack? Uh, briefly, yes, because you said you had no Was idea. it lost? Define lost. You didn't know where it was within Jason's house. I did know where it was. It was at Jason's house. <laughs> was I correct in believing it was at Jason's house? Yes, yeah, I, was. I guess so. Did I ever wonder where it was? <laughs> no, I did not. Uh, I think you did briefly. No, I knew it was at Jason's house. <laughs> so anyway, I just thought that was very funny that um, that it turns out that after declaring authoritatively that you would never... Okay, yes, you said lose, but but I will take it. Uh, I, you will never leave What do you mean? You'll t- you will take it by changing the word that I said to a word that makes you right, and yes. then you will bask in that imagined glory. This is the internet. This is how these things work. Anyway, I did not lose my back. <laughs> <laughs> Even if I had got all the way back to the city, I would still have known exactly where it was. That is true. No, that is true. Maybe uh, you'd have a case if I knew exactly where it was and that knowing was, I know where it is. It's on the BART platform. I would give you a strong case for lost at that point, because even though I believe it to be on the BART platform, it would probably not be there anymore. But Jason is a slightly more trustworthy than the average citizens <laughs> of San Francisco. Well, but, you know, I, I, I think the, the big picture here, the lesson here is that had you owned a wallet that would fit in your pocket you probably wouldn't have brought a backpack to this dinner 
uh, and it therefore it wouldn't have been a problem, and it wouldn't have. Uh, I probably would have bought it anyway. I don't go anywhere. It's like the towel, another reference you don't get. Don't go anywhere without. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hey, hey, Casey read a book. All right. Anyway, yeah, uh, I'm like that with the backpack. Even if it's just for like the little battery pack I have in there to recharge my phone, you never know. How big is the battery pack? <laughs> I used to show it to you. It's a little tiny Duracell thing, you know. But I, I got lots of crap in there. I think I even have my iPad in there. I don't remember. Honestly, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to to like make fun of you here. But like, do you do you keep anything in your pants pockets? Uh, my my phone. I mean, I tried. Like the six is a little bit big to have in my pocket, but generally, you know, my phone is on me and it's in my front pocket. I don't like to sit down a lot with it in my front pocket. Like when I get in the car, I tend to. Well, it's Bluetooth, so I take it out and put it in the little cubby thing for Bluetooth thing in the car. But yeah, basically, my phone. And I guess my keys. If I, I don't know, yeah, my keys, if I'm going, like, if I go to the store, I'm not bringing my backpack with me, right? So my wallet has to go in my pocket when I go to the store or something, but that's not a usual thing. But WWDC is a different, different experience. I'm, uh, it's like uh, going out into space. You got to get your spacesuit on. (laughs) (laughs) I I could see some of that. Yeah, I can understand that. But anyway, I I don't know why you're arguing with this. Like, I agree. I need a thinner wallet. Uh, And I thank everyone who has sent me all the suggestions for (laughs) thin wallets. And now I feel slightly overwhelmed by the million possible choices. Uh, The only thing I know is I don't want one that makes your money visible on the outside because that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, that's why I like the one that I have, which is a UB wallet, Y-U-B-I. And you said it's discontinued. Yeah, and that's the thing is after we talked, I was like, you know what? I should go ahead and order a new one because some of the elastic after the last couple of years has kind of um, fallen off or whatever. And it was originally a Kickstarter. And then I believe it was either an individual or a company um, was selling it you know, outside of Kickstarter. And I went looking to try to find it and I could not find it anymore. And I'm really bummed about that because part of the beauty of the UB was that you had cards on either side of the wallet. And then there was like a little cubby, if you will, it's a terrible description, but a little slot where you could stick bills. And it was, I, I, I thought it was really clever and I really liked it. And, um, so I'm gonna, now I'm going to have to, you know, figure out what you buy, John, and buy one of those for myself, because uh, because I, I I don't know what to do now. I can't get another Yubi. There are a lot of choices though. Like I, seriously, it's it's overwhelming how many. But this is you know this is not a new trend the, the slim wallet thing. But there's a million of them, and everybody loves the one they have. And I look at them all, I'm like they all look very similar. You know, I feel like I need to, something I need to see in person. Like it'll be difficult to buy online just by looking at pictures. You got to kind of feel it, how squishy it is, how bendy it is how big it really is, how how nicely the credit cards fit in and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know. I personally can very, I'm very happy with my uh, Slimmy wallet by a company called Koyono. Don't call it Slimy. Nope, it's a Slimmy. <laughs> it's a uh, black outside with red inside. It looks really cool. And uh, it's relatively inexpensive. I guess right now they're selling it for $45. Uh, and it's really nice. I, uh, I've been using it now for something like four or five years. Yeah, but this is a this is a non-starter for me, though, because it's a front pocket wallet, and that's just barbaric. What makes it a front pocket wallet? You can keep it in any pocket. It it's, says in the URL, Slimmy Minimal Front Pocket Wallet. Yeah, but what makes it? <laughs> other than the words, what makes it a front pocket wallet? No, it doesn't have one of those weird curves in it or anything. It's, it's, still, a, it's still a rectangle. <laughs> if you put it in your back pocket, it will have one of those curves. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> like Casey's field notes. 
That's very true. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I just I, I'm giving you a hard time about the backpack thing. Just out of fun, I, I I am already envisioning all the emails I'm getting about how wrong I am and how right you are. Because anytime anyone doubts you, John, the internet comes to your defense. I'm sorry to ruin your fun with facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, ultimately though, you know, the wallet is not your problem. The it's the contents of the wallet. Like you, you have to fix yourself before you can fix the wallet. Well, obviously, I would, I, you know. Taking stuff out of my wallet now will only help so much because it is a very large wallet. So obviously, if I got a slim, slim wallet, not everything would make it from the old wallet to the new one, clearly, right? Yep. Uh, it's true. All right. Well, anyways, um, what else? Oh, uh, the entire internet wrote to tell us, and we observed ourselves at WWDC, that the Notes app, as written by Apple, the backend is now indeed um, iCloud. It is no longer iMap. Um, thank you to the entirety of the internet for uh, for letting us know that, because that is the case. And there's a one-time porting of your data. Like, kind of like, what do they do with that in, uh, in Yosemite? Like, you... Uh, maybe it was iCloud Photo Library. I don't know. Something else. Anyway, you're talking about the do- the documents move to iCloud Drive. Oh yeah, yeah. When they change the storage, the documents. You know, there's a one time operation. We say, are you ready to move everything over to the new system? Once you do that, you have two sets of information: one visible on the pre El Capitan systems, and one visible on the post. And they're divorced after that. And anyway, uh, so I'm very happy to hear that it's not iMap. All right, and specifically, uh, in case you said iCloud, specifically it's CloudKit. Uh, which is which is worth noting because you know iCloud as an umbrella term has a fairly mixed uh, reliability history because some some of the parts of it were not that great uh, like the core data sync or the original document store you know had, a lot of people had problems with those uh, whereas CloudKit based things including the new Photos app and uh, a lot of apps written since last year uh, tend to be pretty well regarded I don't think anybody has really had major problems with CloudKit so far uh, and even even like the any issues people have had with the Photos app seem to be related to the locally running code and in the app itself, not the cloud backend, which seems pretty solid. That's another follow-up item. I'm pretty sure I said this to you in person and not on a podcast. This is the problem about seeing each other in person, talking about <laughs> my experience using photos on the MacBook One and the Apple Store. How, how did it go? Yeah, so uh, I went to the, the Apple Store finally uh, to see the MacBook One and try the keyboard. I'm not going to talk about the keyboard now. Maybe we'll save that for later. Uh, the short answer on the keyboard is... Uh, my results were inconclusive. Um, anyway, <laughs> it also had photos on it. I was trying to make the thing heat up, like, oh, it's fanless, blah, blah, blah. Can I do something to make this heat up? And I immediately thought of you running the new Photos app. Surely that will make it heat up. It will grind away when it launches and everything like that. Uh, and the MacBook One has a very wimpy CPU. I haven't looked at the specs, but I'm going to guess that it's probably in the same ballpark as my Mac Pro, like maybe even slower, possibly. It might. I mean, in parallel tasks, it's almost certainly slower. Um, in single threaded, it, it it's roughly equivalent to like a I think it was like a 2011 era MacBook Air CPU. Right, and that's what we have here. We actually do run photos on the our 2011 Air. That's back there. I can hear the fans whirring now because it's doing some <laughs> backup stuff. And I wanted to try it out uh, to heat up the the MacBook One, and I was shocked by how incredibly fast and responsive everything was on that MacBook One using photos. I did all of my normal stuff. It, it launched fairly quickly. Uh, I went through photos. I selected them. I favorited them. I added keywords. I added keywords to big selections of things. Like everything was instant. And the only thing I can think of is their photo library was, of course, like two thousand photos and minus sixty thousand. And I, the MacBook One, does that have eight gigs of RAM? Yes. So and it has twice the RAM. So I still don't quite know exactly what it is about my twenty eleven MacBook Air that is so brutalized. My my best guess now is. 
uh, like, you know, I imported from iPhoto. So I imported from iPhoto. I assuming it shoved all the metadata into whatever it's using, probably maybe a SQLite database or something. Maybe all the operations I'm doing cause a database operation that takes a ton of time because my database is stuffed with everything. And if I took all these photos out and re-imported them fresh with no metadata, it would be fast. I don't know. Uh, I'm not excusing the Photos app because like I basically did exactly what Apple expected me to do. I bought their program. I used it to store my family photos for years. The new one came out. I did the import process and imported my photos and everything is super duper slow. Uh, so I'm, I'm disappointed, but I have some amount of hope seeing that it's it's obviously not CPU related. I I can't tell if it's RAM related. I'm hoping somehow things get faster in a future version because the experience of using photos when everything is fast is actually not horrible. Excellent. Um, the other piece of follow-up we have, and then I think we're done, is um, the keyboard trackpad thing on iOS 9. Is there, is there a name for that? Swipe not to type? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was called QuickType. Well, whatever it's called. Um, whatever that thing is, uh, it apparently does work on not only the 6 Plus uh, in the iOS 9 beta, but interestingly, the 6 as well. Um, Serenity Caldwell, friend of the show, um, has a 6 that she uh, put iOS 9 on, and it was working in uh, on her phone as well, which was slightly surprising to me. Not a bad thing, of course, but a little surprising. Um, so we should point that out as well. Are you guys running uh, iOS 9 on your carry phones? No. Who would do that? Uh, apparently serenity some people do that actually some people have to do it for a living we don't three or four years ago i probably would have done that but no this year i i have it on my ipad which i hardly ever use and it keeps i keep coming back to it every couple of days to do something on it and the battery is just completely dead <laughs> my experience on my beloved retina pad mini hi Stephen hackett um is not quite that bad but it is certainly very slow it is certainly um randomly rebooting and i know that because it it, it says when you reboot you know you have to enter your passcode once you reboot blah 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 um and it definitely is not getting the battery life i'm used to it getting however i do like it and i did use picture in picture when i was on the plane um back from san francisco i was watching the complications video while doing something else i don't recall specifically what and the picture in picture even on my now almost two-year-old um ipad mini was really really cool and it worked reasonably well the only problem is it only works as with all these new hotness features it only works with apple apps or at least that's been my experience so far but all in all two thumbs up in principle for ios 9 uh one thumb up for the beta so far our first sponsor this week is automatic Automatic is a connected car adapter that plugs into your car's diagnostic port. And then they have smartphone apps that you can then do cool stuff with this. And it integrates with over 20 different apps to give you a better driving experience. They've sponsored us before. There's a bunch of new stuff since then. So what it's always been able to do is you pair it with the automatic iPhone or Android app, uh, and then it can do a few cool things. It can diagnose your check engine light. It can tell you in plain English what's going on. It lets you clear the error code if it's a temporary error, like you, you, know, you left your gas cap open or something like that. Um, it can give you a log of your trips and your parking locations, uh, so you can track things like your fuel efficiency. You can never lose your car in a parking lot. Um, if you have an accident, it can automatically call emergency services for you to help get you the help that you might need. And then it can also evaluate your driving efficiency. Uh, and it, it gives you a score. You can match your goals so that you can save money on gas. This can really you know, add up to big savings over time. 
Now, they actually launched their own little app store for the car. They have over 20 apps available, and this allows you to use your car's data in all kinds of ways. So just a few examples here. Uh, They have an app called Concur, which lets you pull your trips easily into your expense reports. So if you work at a company, Casey, uh, you you might have to do (laughs) things like this. Um, They also have integration with If This Then That, IFTTT, which gives you the power to build all kinds of recipes based on your driving. Recipes, of course, is an IFTTT term for, you know, various workflows and triggers and various things you can do based on certain events or stats that happen while you are driving. They also have a developer platform uh, so that you, you developers, uh, can build apps using the car's data as well. Um, There's three levels of data available for developers. There's a REST API, a real-time events API, and a streaming SDK. Um, The REST API is very, very full-featured. It has, uh, you can request driver's trip histories, distance, routes, times, locations, miles per gallon, uh, and then you can even quickly launch your app on Heroku, Casey. You can use your dinosaurs or whatever and make that work. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, go to developers.automatic.com to learn more about that. So anyway, back to Automatic the Device. Check it out. Whether you're a developer or not, if you are a developer, this is a pretty cool way to do new stuff that uh, you can't really do without something like this. Uh, If you're not a developer... Check it out to help improve your driving and to give you all the cool features uh, to maybe to use some of these cool apps, use some of the APIs, use some of the triggers, or just look at your metrics and get your measurements or check your engine light, stuff like that. Very cool stuff. Normally, this is 100 bucks, but for us, it's 20% off. Automatic.com slash ATP. That's automatic.com slash ATP for 20% off. Brings it to just 80 bucks. That's free shipping in just two business days, 45-day return policy, and... There is no subscription fee per month. You don't have to pay like, you know, five bucks a month for the service or whatever. No, you buy the, the you buy the automatic device up front for eighty bucks with our coupon code, automatic.com slash ATP. Eighty bucks up front, and then that's it. No monthly fee. Ships to you in two business days. Check it out. Automatic.com slash ATP. Thanks a lot. All right. So we should probably talk a little more about what was released and uh, discussed at WWDC to the best of our ability. I don't know what is and what isn't NDA'd anymore. As far as I know, nothing's NDA'd, right? You can download all the WWDC videos without logging into Apple's website. So I think we could talk about anything that is in the WWDC videos. Excellent. So with that in mind, uh, let's talk a little bit about the State of the Union and uh, some of the stuff that's been making the rounds over the last couple of days in the really nerdy developer circles, uh, specifically around Bitcode. So, John, do you want to kind of give us an overview as to what this is? Uh, first, like after we recorded our episode of WWDC, I realized that we didn't talk about Bitcoin. I'm like, oh, my God, did I totally space on that? Did I forget because we didn't have any notes and I was just sitting there? And no, because we said we were going to cover the keynote and we went through the keynote and Bitcoin was not in the keynote. Uh, so that in itself is interesting that what uh, this is what I was referring to before. The, the announcement that I was most excited and intrigued about at WWDC was Bitcoin and State of the Union. And for the rest of the week, like, boy... I can't wait to learn more about Bitcode in the sessions. And I, you know, obviously I, you can't go to all the sessions because it's a multi-track conference. I didn't go to all the sessions. None of the sessions I went to mentioned the word Bitcode, nor I believe did any of them have have the word on a slide. I later found out from someone tweeting screenshots that the app thinning session that I did go to previously had Bitcode in the description of the session and that was later removed. And having gone to the session, I don't think Bitcode was mentioned there uh, either. So... That didn't tell me much of a bit code, but uh, the reason I was excited by it is in the State of the Union, a video that we will link in the show notes because everybody can download it and you don't have to, you know, log in or anything, was that it was going to be a way to have a 
processor agnostic platform agnostic or slightly more agnostic representation <laughs> of your application that would be optimized for the specific platform that it's downloaded for. Uh, and this was an intriguing announcement because it freaked developers out and because it is great fodder for uh, speculation about rumors. Right now, when you submit an app to the App Store, you compile it, you build a release build, you upload it in some, what is it? In like, is, is, it's all through Xcode, right? I don't, I've never actually done this, so I don't know. Marco? The, the regular way to do it is now, it used to be like build, you know, build an IPA, zip it up, upload it through a terrible web interface. Now uh, you leave the terrible web, web interface to go to Xcode to prepare the upload and do it off there. There's probably a way to do it without that. There's probably some kind of like advanced enterprise tool. Yeah, but I don't, the way almost everyone does it is through Xcode. But anyway, it does a release build with all your optimizations enables, uh, enabled and it uploads the result to uh, Apple. And that that is, you know, in obviously it's signed by Apple and they do some other things with it. But in general, there's the expectation that the thing you built on your machine, especially for Mac apps where it's like literally running on the thing, like it's not, you know, maybe less so for our iOS apps where you're always running into the simulator and then you do the release build and you're running that on your device or whatever. But anyway, the expectation is the binary that you have made and tested uh, is going to be the binary that it lands on people's computers. And that binary is a compiled binary targeting a specific architecture. You can make it for x86-64. You can make it for ARM7, ARM7S. Like, it's all sorts of processors you can target that limit the hardware you can go on. But the bottom line is you are creating a native binary executable that can run in iOS or OS X exactly as it is. And if you were to do an MD5 checksum, well, maybe not for the signing. I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to express the idea that, like, the thing that you debugged on your device, you, you make a release build, put it on your device, and you use it, that's the same code that's going to be executing on somebody else's device uh, when they download the app from the store. But BitCode is saying, we're going to build something that is not native code for any processor, and that's what we're going to have on the store. And at some point in the future, I assume at down, the point of download, but it really it could be almost any time, that code will be converted to native code that is specifically optimized for whatever it happens to be running on. Uh, BitCode itself is not new. It was part of LLVM since, I think, version 2. Previously, I think they called it bytecode. I don't know if it ever was bytecode, or just differences how the stream format is made. But either way, it's just a binary, compact binary representation of LLVM IR, which is the intermediary representation. And, oh boy, there's a lot of acronyms for expanding. LLVM originally was an acronym that stood for low-level virtual machine. Now LLVM encompasses a much larger project. That, that That's kind of a misnomer at this point. But LLVM IR really is kind of assembly code for an imaginary processor with some vaguely idealized characteristics. Um, I guess we'll link to my Swift thing. I think I talk about LLVM IR in there. So BitCode is just LLVM IR, but instead of looking like text, it is a, a compact representation. Uh, if you can think of compiling your code, starting from source code, and it being transformed several times till eventually ends up at a binary, LVM IR is slightly before the, it's changed into machine code. So they're saying, we're going to turn your program into LVM IR, encode that LVM IR as bit code, and that's what we'll have on the store. And when someone, you know, again, we don't know when this is going to take place. I assume it's on download, but you could you could take that bit code and download it to everyone's device, and when they run it, it could be compiled just in time for their particular architecture. I assume they're going to do it when you download it. Um, so that's the the technical uh, gist of what they're doing here. Again, they didn't talk a lot about it, so we don't know when the, this is all going to take place. BitCode is, I'm going from memory here, mandatory for wa native WatchKit apps. Is that correct? I believe that's right. And it said optional for iOS apps for now. 
Yeah. And didn't say anything about the Mac. Uh, but I mean, there is nothing technical that makes Bitcode not able to work on the Mac or that means it would have to be mandatory in the watch. These are policy decisions. And it's, you know, the why is it mandatory in the watch? Well, that's the newest platform. Nobody has made a native app for the watch except for Apple. So it's not like it's a big change to say, look, this is just the way it is in the watch. You're going to submit Bitcode, right? Or, you know, your release builds are going to are going to upload Bitcode to us. And then everyone else who gets it is going to get a a executable binary optimized for the particular piece of hardware they have it on. Uh, so when they made this announcement in the keynote, I made a bunch of uh, silly tweets about uh, how this, uh, you know, could the, the, the obvious rumors that people are going to say is, oh, my God, this means ARM Max, because if you're trying to change the uh, uh, the application representation to be this thing that's not specific to any one processor and then you optimize it on the fly, then you could change the processor architecture at any time, right? And then you would just recompile this bit code for the new architecture. So if they if they got everyone onto bit code and they changed to ARM Max, developers wouldn't even need to rebuild their apps and resubmit. And you wouldn't need to have fat binaries. It would just be everything is bit code. And then you download it to your ARM Mac and it turns it into an ARM executable. And you download it to your x86 Mac and it turns it into an x86 executable. That is the immediate fantasy rumor when people hear about Bitcode. Unfortunately, as fun as that would be to speculate about, that's not really how LLVM IR and Bitcode work. LLVM IR, although it is kind of imaginary assembler for an imaginary processor, it has things in it that are specific to uh, an instruction set or an architecture. Uh, it's not completely pinned down. But it's it's not the type of thing where uh, I think you brought this up when we were talking about it with the ending this in my research, I've determined that uh, there is much more instruction set specific stuff in LVR IR than you would imagine. And it's not as trivial to say, well, LVMR is completely processor agnostic. And when, when we turn it into machine code, we can turn it into machine code for any processor. That seems not to be the case. I've been trying to find out what what are the the nature and number of those things like that. You know, what is it about LVMR that, uh, that's pinned down to a particular instruction set and how deep does it go? I haven't been able to find any, any good examples. As I'm looking at, the, uh, at the point I'm looking at the LVM source code, I realize I'm in over my head. I don't quite understand this. But anyway, <laughs> if you are entertaining fantasies of, of Bitcode, meaning that uh, if, if all our apps are updated to Bitcode, they can change processors without any problem, that, as far as I can tell, is absolutely not the case. Um, so the next question is, why the hell does bitcode exist if not for my fantasy scenario of enabling our max guys have any theories well i mean there's a lot of other optimizations they could do like you know maybe maybe they this would just help them first of all there's like just better optimizations for the next step you know i, I don't know I, I don't know quite how low level the bitcode is um uh, but i imagine it's not just like a text version of assembly code like i, I imagine it's like a little bit higher than that so you know, if if they develop new optimizations for thing for how they translate that into the assembly language, even within the same CPU family, just over time they develop some cool optimization. They can then apply that to apps. Um, more significantly, probably they could. Uh, you know, when when you move when you make a minor update within a CPU architecture, so you go like you know from you know ARM v seven s to ARM v seven k, or you know what like whatever. I, I don't know the, all those code names and which ones are minor, but, uh, you know, or, you know, like when Intel releases a new CPU with new streaming instructions, new vector instructions, like, you know, if there's a way for them to use Bitcode to retroactively optimize apps for, you know, new instructions and, and things like that for for more minor CPU revisions, 
that could be useful. I don't know how useful that is, uh, you know, as like a percentage of overall performance. And, you know, like I, I don't think, I, I don't see why this is worth the trouble yet. And, and I think over time we will see why it's worth the trouble. But right now it is not immediately apparent because you're right. Like the big changes would involve things like byte order changes where like that, that's a, that's a bigger problem. And this can't automatically deal with that properly just because of the level at which byte order assumptions happen. This can't do it. I think it's even deeper than that. I think even if, even if you had an architecture that had the same byte order, that LVM IR still pins things down with a target architecture in mind because that that representation is the thing that the optimizer can work on it's like it's marked up more than assembly would be like the thing that that consumes lvmir and and outputs uh machine code it knows much more about the structure of things because lvmir is sort of annotated with much more information than assembly would be to say to indicate uh you know types and from whence each bit of code came and uh you know what what a function is and also like it's not just it's not just a an ascii representation of machine code far from it so that's that's why the 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 thing that produces machine code can uh can optimize it in ways that you can't optimize if you just have a dot s file and say oh now optimize that there's lots of optimizations you can't do to plain old assembly because you just don't know enough about the meaning of the original program it's like well this assembly does what it does i don't know if it's safe to make this transformation but lvmir has more information about it um before we get into like the worth the trouble, like before we get into the trouble aspect of it, um, it's interesting to think about why this is even uh, possible or a thing. This is only possible, if only feasible, because Apple controls the means of distribution for all iOS and watch applications, setting aside jailbreak and blah blah blah. Right? That means that they can the a they can mandate this and say guess what you're going to submit bit code for the watch you're like all right i guess i'm going to submit bit code for the watch uh and b they know where everybody's getting their watch kit apps from so if the only source for watch kit apps only ever has bit code any benefits which we'll talk about in a second that, that that might that they might have will benefit the entire platform it's not like well it'll benefit like on the mac app if they did it on the mac well it'll benefit for people who download from the mac app store but people can put dmgs up on their websites that do or don't have bitcode in it so you know like you're you're not getting that advantage across the platform but for ios and the watch whatever benefits apple think is getting it gets everywhere um ios of course would have to go through a conversion the watch will be bitcode all bitcode from the beginning so uh lots of interesting things become possible when all of your software funnels through a single point Uh, lots of good things and bad things and i think apple's hoping this is one of the good things Right. And the bad things, I think, about Bitcode, what scares me as a developer, you know, like a lot of developers are saying, well, this is going to change my binary. I'm worried about crashing and stuff like that. That's valid. Uh, I'm not necessarily worried about that myself, although that does introduce an interesting problem of this would then re- like, you know, if, if this is, say, crashing on an iPhone 5S. And you don't have an iPhone 5S because now that's old and you don't have one anymore or you never got one to begin with. Uh, then you might have to go get an iPhone 5S just to even reproduce the crash if you'll even be able to. So that that's a problem. Uh, I think that's a minor one, though. To me, the bigger problem here is if, if you look at you know the, what you mentioned earlier about how you know developers want to be able to build their final binary – Ship it to Apple, and then ship that to have that have Apple ship that to devices, so they know the final bits they built. In reality, that has never quite been the case because of code signing. 
And even though it's not technically part of the app binary, uh, it's an important enough part that every so often, as I ran into with Instant Paper a long time ago, and as as still happens with somebody every few months, uh, every so often, code signing breaks on Apple's side. And something goes wrong where apps reach the App Store with invalid code signing by Apple. And so what happens to the user is they tap to open them and they appear to just crash immediately on launch. You, 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 you might see the, uh, the launch default image, um, but for the most part, they just crash on launch. They appear to be, at least. In reality, the code signing is just failing and exiting. But uh, every so often, you have this problem as a developer where your app crashes because Apple messed up while modifying it on the way to the store. Bitcode is now giving them another way to do that. It's, it's given them another opportunity for things to go wrong. That What worries me is not that, that a Bitcode abstraction would be insufficiently tested, that a Bitcode optimization you know, would go wrong. What worries me is like now there's another step between me and the customers. Regardless of what that step is, there's another step that can cause problems when it breaks. And I'm not going to not even gonna say if it breaks, we know these things break sometimes. That is what is the big risk here is like yet another thing that Apple's going to modify about my app on the way to the customers that might occasionally go wrong. Yeah, and that's what developers are wary about is it's a loss of control. Like already, you know, you're not controlling who your app is distributed to and so on and so forth. But from a technical perspective, you always want to you always want to have the ability to have the exact same thing running that the customers have, even if you can't actually communicate with them. You you want to know, you want a predictable uh, chain of events. And there's always parts that are not predictable. Even though Xcode is running on your system, you don't know the internals of the compiler. There could be a compiler bug in a point release of Xcode that hosts your binary that somehow makes it run. You know, there's always bugs, but adding more of those things makes developers feel uncomfortable. And it's uncertainty. Like, we've been battling with code signing for tons of years now, and it drives people crazy for a variety of reasons. Uh, but this just adds another thing. So is this going to be worse than code signing is in terms of things you have to fight with? I think it'll probably be better just because, especially in the short term, this is just sort of stopping short of that final step targeting at this point, a single architecture because there only is one Apple watch, right? So there's some runway for them to work out the kinks in this. Uh, because the idea is like, well, I don't know how it's going to be. Well, you will know how it's going to be built because when you upload the bit code to the store, it's going to convert it to a binary exactly the same way it does in your system because everybody has the same watch because there's only one watch, right? So it's an ideal platform to test this out on. What people are worried about is I test it on all my devices, but like you said, that when when the bit code gets con- uh, converted to the A5, it turns out the optimizer does something bad on the A5 and it crashes and I don't have an A5 device. Uh, I mean, maybe that would still happen with the binary, uh, but you're not entirely sure. Like, uh, for example, if the compiler emitted an instruction that has bad performance characteristics or reveals a, a, a bug or something on the A5, you wouldn't know that unless you ran it on an A5. So not having an A5 could be a problem in, in uh, all situations. Uh, trying to think about why Apple would want to do this. Again, I'm basically ruling out, oh, this makes it this makes us able to change processor architectures easily. I don't think this is uh, helps or hurts in that regard. Uh, but... Apple does change, as, as Marco said, the minor parts of the architecture. Right? They make their own chips, essentially, at this point. Uh, different chips have different vector units. Maybe they add an instruction here or two. Maybe they, they tweak uh, something. Uh, maybe they 
try to change one of their, you know, underlying uh, frameworks or libraries to do something smarter on the new, you know, the A9 or the A10 or the A11. All these things might seem like minor concerns, but from Apple's perspective, if if they do something really cool in the A10 and they, you know, change around a, a bunch of things having to do with like number of registers, pipeline depth, uh, size of the the vector units, uh, like you know, a new new specialized instruction for a particular thing, they're helpless to change all the what is it millions? I don't know how many apps there are on the App Store. Lots and lots of apps on the App Store that are already compiled into machine code, and there's nothing they can do short of nagging developers saying, "Hey, uh, your app not so much would run faster, but your app would be much kinder to our battery if you would just recompile it." Because actually all of this, whatever, core audio, core image, whatever, like uh, VDSP, whatever little library you're using on, on in your app, uh, if you could recompile it for the A10, it would be much nicer for battery life or for the S2 or for the S3 or whatever. Uh, you know, I'm thinking mostly in terms of battery life, not performance, because that's where a- Apple's been concentrating these days. And they have no leverage to do that. So Apple, you know, is such a control freak as a company, but like, you know, it makes their products better. How can they convince a million developers to rebuild their apps? They can't. And people will just keep downloading apps. They keep slaughtering their batteries. And even though Apple has done this super hard work in the A9, A10, A11, or whatever, S1, S2, S3, S4, to try to make a, a more battery efficient architecture. And because they do control the means of distribution of all the apps, like, we've got all these apps, we've got all these binaries, but they're not taking advantage of all this hard work we're doing. Ah, but on the watch, if they make a bit code from day one, they can be assured that if they make the S2 or the S3 massively more battery efficient by tweaking the particular instructions that they have, that they don't need developers to rebuild their apps. They will do it. They will, when they optimize the bit code uh, to, to make the native binary for the S3, they will do the transformation that uses the new instructions that are nicer on the battery on the S3. So your same app that you didn't have to recompile, that you never looked at, that you just put in the store or whatever your you know little doohickey or and probably not going to be a lot of games, but that would be the, the ideal case, will suddenly be more battery efficient on the S3 without you having to do anything. And that may seem like a minor thing, but. I think that is more than enough reason for Apple to want to do this because this is exactly what they always want to do. What what can only Apple do? Only Apple makes its own CPUs, makes its own compiler, <laughs> controls the distribution of all the applications. Like they have the complete package here. And this is one of those things you can do when you have the complete package. And I think that's probably much more exciting for Apple <laughs> than it is for us on the outside. And I think Apple is going to endure the potential scariness for developers i mean they've proven they'll, they'll do it with sandboxing they'll do they'll do it with uh, uh code signing the developers will endure it because that's where the customers are and that's where the money is and you got to do what you got to do um but I, I definitely think this is the most interesting and probably least understood including by me because apple said nothing about it announcement at wwdc and i'm very interested in, in learning more about it from anyone who's willing to tell me anything about it <laughs> no, I think you hit the nail on the head, John, that basically this is about keeping keeping their options open. And Apple tends, from what we can tell, to like to keep their options open. So uh, I'm curious to see, like you said, where, where this goes and and if we'll ever hear of a time where, where Apple says, which I doubt, but, you know, oh, hey, this is all possible because of Bitcode. You know, we've all kind of realized that, say, iPad multitasking is possible because of auto layout and, and size classes. And that's kind of been a, a, a wink and a nod uh, from Apple that has 
uh, indicate, well, obviously we could all put it together, but also indicated that. Um, so I'm, I'm anxious to hear more about this as time goes on. I don't know. I wonder if they'll even mention it again. But like in terms of like, oh, future possibilities, it's not so much future from Apple's perspective, because the, you know, the A9, the S2, the S3, the A10, those are all real things inside Apple with like probably, you know, some of them are probably done. Some of them have design. So if they're going to fiddle with some instructions for battery efficiency, those instructions already exist. They're already in that situation where they say, when we release the S2, all of our watch binaries are not going to take advantage of these great new instructions that we've that we've added or that we've tweaked or these new execution units or the different register layout or whatever, uh, because the machine code has already been built and the loops have already been unrolled and the, the, you know, all that stuff, like, you know, we can't rely on the rename registers to do all the shuffling for us. Like if only we could rebuild all the watch binaries, take advantage of what we know is going to be a great feature of the S2 or S3, because it's already done. They already have those features. So from our perspective, it's like, oh, this opens up possibilities. From Apple's perspective is we're doing this now because we know for sure, because we're making the chips, that we don't want a bunch of binaries built for the S1 to be stuck in the store for years and years because we can't get developers to recompile them. Uh, and, and iOS, again, they have to transition that. And the Mac, they're stuck in the situation where the, the bottom line is, I don't know if it's most, but certainly not all mac software comes from the mac app store so i'm not sure what they're going to do there but like i said this technology they could do it in the mac app store they could, they are doing it on ios and the watch um it just seems like it has less less of an advantage there and frankly they don't care that much it seems probably on the mac like oh you you know want to rebuild your binaries to take it because they don't make the cpus intel does and so they're not as privy to intel's roadmap as they are to the the a line of processors i wonder also you know how much of this is in response to and preparation for like like the the world we live in now, which is like back in the olden days, uh, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, early days of the App Store, uh, Apple could announce any change really, or at least any new hardware, and a very large portion of, of apps on the store would be updated within a reasonable amount of time to to account for that, to accommodate that. Uh, they could release like you know a. They released the iPad, and, and developers <laughs> adapted to that. They eventually released, you know, even even as recently as the iPhone five, uh, they would release a new screen size, and most apps got updated relatively quickly to it. But I think as we're seeing, the rate of that is slowing down dramatically. So now we have apps like the iPhone six is now almost a year old, and six plus. They're now almost a year old. We're seeing apps from you know, from people who have a lot of users but don't necessarily care about their apps like banks uh we're seeing apps like i i still have so many apps on my phone from companies that have plenty of resources to update them that don't even run natively on the iphone 6 screen still some of them are even adding other features like i think somebody said their bank supports apple pay now but their app still doesn't support ios 6 or uh, i mean the iphone 6 screen like there are so many of these things, and the way Apple usually uh, adds these new features uh, or new support to apps is they build in some kind of compatibility mode where the app just scales to the new screen size or whatever the case may be, or it doesn't get the new features uh, or whatever. And only apps that are built with the new SDK uh, that are that are compiled against the new SDK only they get the new features. And they do this so that when you update o- OSs, a whole bunch of apps don't break. The limitation or the the downside to this is like right now, everyone's installing the beta of of iOS nine on their iPad Air twos to try split screen, and none of the third party apps work yet. 
because uh, only third-party apps built with the week-old iOS 9 SDK uh, and that are somehow now available to their customers, which can't even exist in the App Store yet. It's only through test flight. Uh, only those will be running in split-screen mode. And so you have this new feature. And then when when this when iOS 9 is released this fall, presumably with a larger iPad uh, also, there's going to be the vast majority of iPad apps out there are not going to be compatible with these new features. Uh, they might not be compatible with the new iPad screen size. It, you know, it's and and that hurts Apple. It hurts Apple's hardware ambitions and and they're and pushing the roadmap forward and pushing the software SDK forward. It, like it hurts them that so many apps are not being updated in a reasonable amount of time to their new stuff. So they have to come up with ways to to increase the chance that they can just opt everyone in rather than right now where everyone gets opted out of new changes. And so one of those things is auto layout. One of those things is uh, um, launch image storyboards instead of just flat images. And uh, maybe Bitcode is part of that too in, in, in what is probably a small way, but it, it has to be related because this is a big problem Apple faces in the app library these days. And, and I see that only getting worse in the future as not only as the economics of the App Store get harder, uh, but also as Apple seems to be increasing the rate at which they are uh, adding new device capabilities, adding new screen sizes. And on the watch, maybe when, you know, Watch OS 3 comes out next year, presumably, uh, you know, the watch layout is so simple. It's this kind of like stack view based hierarchy, like like what you get on the watch layout wise, UI wise is so simple that if they added a new watch screen size uh, next year or the you know this fall or spring or whatever, if they add a new screen size to the watch, they might be able to just opt everyone in. They might not have to do the default opt out and then scale it to some stupid you know stupid blurry resolution. They might be able to just opt everyone in and it just works because apps are so limited in what they could do layout wise. They've been beating us over the head from day one with WatchKit saying don't assume a screen size. And with things like Bitcode and auto layout and you know like maybe this is all going towards that goal. Only time will tell. But uh, what else is awesome these days? Our second sponsor this week is Squarespace. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Uh, you can build so many times, so many kinds of websites with Squarespace. It is so hard to justify building a website any other way for so many types of things. So, let's say you're building a site for yourself. You you know you have a blog, a portfolio. Maybe you're a photographer. You have a photo portfolio. What my wife uses it for that, and she loves it. Uh, you know, maybe you have uh, a restaurant or a business. You want a site for that. Uh, if you want, you know, if you want to have a store where you sell T-shirts, you can do that. If you want to have, you know, a, a site for a book or an album or whatever, you can do all this with Squarespace. There are so many kinds of sites you can make with Squarespace. Now, I've used a lot of tools for building websites before, and I can build my own websites from scratch. I know how. I know how to run servers, but in so many cases, it's just not worth it. Even for geeks like us. It is so often just worth hosting it on Squarespace rather than setting up your own server somewhere or building your own CMS from scratch. It is it is so rarely worth doing that. So Squarespace makes it simple, powerful, and beautiful to make websites. They have a robust and reliable platform, state-of-the-art technology powering your site. Uh, they ensure maximum stability under load. If you get like slammed by a big traffic load, they will keep your site up. They have maximum security. You don't have to worry about your site getting hacked. I don't think I've ever heard of a Squarespace hack, honestly. I, I certainly can't remember one, um, which is pretty impressive for, for, for a service that size. 
All their designs are beautiful and professionally designed, and they're all responsive. So your design looks great on every device every time. The screen sizes change over time, and as new things are added, Squarespace is on top of it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, if you want to have a store with commerce, you can sell digital or physical goods. It's all included in the platform. So check all this out. There's so much you can do in Squarespace. Everything is WYSIWYG. You know, what you see is what you get. I don't know if I'm allowed to pronounce that like that, but I'm going <laughs> to say WYSIWYG. Everything is WYSIWYG. Everything, you, you know, you can drag and drop and you can move things around. Or if you want to actually inject code, you can do that too. Um, you can write in Markdown if you want to. Really cool stuff. Check it out. Um, now, normally they offer a, um, they have a free trial with no credit card required. Uh, now, they have a special deal now. If you start your trial soon, before June 30th, um, if you sign up for Squarespace's professional or business plan, uh, you will get a free year of custom email and business tools when you sign up. So start your free trial now to get in on this deal before June 30th. Uh, and then when you buy, you can get the uh, free year of custom email and business tools uh, for the professional or business plan. So check it out. Uh, otherwise, if you don't need that or, or you know if you miss the deadline, don't worry. Try it anyway. Go to squarespace.com. Use offer code ATP to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for our show. So once again, squarespace.com, start a free trial, no credit card required. It's great. Build a site, see if you like it. If you do like it, use coupon code ATP for 10% off your first purchase. Thank you very much to Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I just want to save you from feedback that you may get, Marco, after your last talk about... Uh the analogy between uh, size classes and a lot of this stuff. Oh, no. Marco was not suggesting that Bitcoin will allow your applications to run at different screen sizes. He was making, he was making, <laughs> an, he was making an analogy. Right. And I'm, and I'm saying like, you know, it's, I think it's part of this overall picture of like trying to get to the po- to the point where Apple can make a new device that might have a new screen size that might have a new CPU. They can make a new device and they can opt apps into the new features rather than right now where apps are all opt out until they're built to the new SDK. Yeah, the Apple's getting much better at that because like you can feel Apple's frustration of, you know, I mean, they, they kind of did it to themselves. Like, well, what do you mean an iPhone SDK? I guess here, let's slap this together. Like it was, you know, it's everything was fixed size and they changed the screen size and they had, you know, it's like they're working, as we said in past years, they're working their way up to what they have now, which is a much more flexible layout system that can lend itself to features like split screen. But it took them a long time to get there, but it's really hard to do that. Like even on the watch, like you said, the watch UI is so limited. Surely the people doing the watch getting everything like, keep in mind that screen sizes may change. So we should do everything we can because we've done this. We've been through this once before. So in the watch kit thing, make sure we do everything so that nothing is fixed size. Nothing is specified in those, you know, like just really uh, keep a very limited API. But even then it's so hard to do things in a general way. It's not like they're trying not to telegraph future stuff there. It's just so hard to do everything in a general way. And a good example is what was it? One of the sessions they were talking about the, uh, the complication sizes and the graphics that you can include and it was like you can include one graphic for the 38 millimeter size one graphic for the 48 millimeter size and then and then an at 2x size and they said you know if you don't include any of the other ones we'll just fall back to add 2x also if there's a watch that is not 48 and not th- uh, not 30 uh, 38 and not 42 millimeters we'll use the 2x and so they don't want to say we're going to make a 38 a 42 and a 46 because that would telegraph they're having a 46 but at the same time if they come out with a different watch size, good app developers are going to want to make a pixel perfect native size for their new watch size. But because they don't know what that watch size is, they just have one kind of fallback that they can kind of use in a pinch. So 
you know, it's better than not having a fallback. It's better probably than scaling the 38 or the 42 size up. But, you know, it's just so there are some things that just have to be fixed for the for the device you're doing, particularly artwork. Because, you know, the whole fantasy back in the day was like, oh, everything will be vectors and it will look good. But that's not the reality of pixel art. You know, good, good UI designs, especially when they're microscopic like they're on the watch. Someone's got to sit in there with the individual pixels and lay them out. And if they come up with a new size, having something scaled is better than nothing, but you're going to have to go through and change it anyway. And I mean, it just goes to like this. You can't make it so that we can do anything and all your apps will run perfectly and take advantage of all the new features. They're just doing trying to do everything they can. And Bitcode is the hardware side of that. Like under the covers, we keep doing a bunch of crap down there. And we hate the fact that your binary that you haven't updated in two years is going to be plunking onto people's phones because they love your game or whatever. And Or feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that, so like the the motivation for apple to do this is so clear to me and the the discomfort from developers i don't i don't want to make a prediction but i'm really hoping that it turns out to be mostly a non-issue in the same way that you know like compiler bugs and stuff like that or even code signing difficulties like in the grand scheme of things uh app review policies feel like a much larger both potential and actual damage to the experience of developers than bugs because bugs get fixed bugs even when they did that thing with the code signing like that was pretty much the biggest disaster you could possibly imagine they fix it right whereas app store policies try to commit someone that it's a bug is it a feature is it a bug is it intended is it not is it accidental what are the actual effects uh much more difficult so I, i have confidence that bugs will be addressed and fixed and i hope there aren't too many of them all right. We should probably talk about Swift 2. And I don't remember if we got to this during uh, the last episode or not. But among other things, it's going to be open sourced later this year, including um, support for Linux coming directly from Apple, uh, which is pretty exciting and interesting. And I, for one, am extremely curious to see what kind of adoption it gets from the you know Linux neckbeards and 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 all the server side server side developers that that run on Linux. And Marco, you know, you're you're one of those. Um, I'm curious to see how that goes because obviously JavaScript seems to, in many ways, be the flavor du jour um, for for new server development. Obviously, Node, <laughs> which just goes to show that it doesn't need to be a good language to get successful on the server. <laughs> right. um, although JavaScript isn't that bad, but well, anyway, no, the whole reason JavaScript is on the server is because it's on the client. That's right. That's whole, you know, because people, are like, I don't want to have two different code bases to do similar things. Can I have the same code in all places? I can't change the code in the browser, therefore I can only have to change it. It's it's a it's a tragedy, is what it is. It's, <laughs> it's just it's like an infection that's just leaking out. You know, I've never played Pandemic, but I imagine this is what the game board looks like. <laughs> <laughs> board game reference for Marco. I I have Pandemic. Thank you. I'm sure you do. I, I'm, I'm I'm waiting for you know next year's big web framework thing to be VB Script. Oh. God, no, just just no. But anyway, so with Swift 2, we're going to get Swift for Linux. And um, the other thing that was interesting about Swift 2, and this seems to be kind of the darling WWDC talk of this year, more so than I can recall from previous years, everyone seems to be consistently pointing to, um, what was it, pro- uh, protocol-oriented programming in Swift? Is that correct? Before I uh, take a big dump all over the, this uh, <laughs> pro- <laughs> pro- protocol extensions, I wanted to say one thing about Swift for Linux. Like, yeah, We did talk about open sourcing Swift in, in, in the previous show because that was in the keynote. The reason I put it in there is what we didn't talk about is what you just mentioned, like that Apple said, hey, we're open sourcing it, blah, blah, blah. 
and open source, you know, the uh, standard library and swiftly available for, you know, iOS, OS 10, and also Linux. The word Linux was on a slide in Apple keynote presentation. Apple is not, I assume, making Swift for Linux out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, and so you have to ask, why are they making it? One potential reason is if you're going to open source something with the idea of, you know, we talked about this last show, you know, making Swift viable uh, for a larger community. Languages can't be confined. It can't be proprietary. They're, that limits, you know, you're not going to get world domination with Swift if it's just an Apple thing. It has to be everywhere. And if you just open sourcing, it isn't enough to show that it's everywhere. It helps to have a place where you can port it to say, see, it actually is portable. Uh, it's not just a bunch of source code that you can't even build anywhere else. Linux is a super popular platform. Linux is the open source darling. Here is a Linux version of Swift that you can compile and run on Linux and do Swift things on Linux, both to prove to ourselves that we are correctly open sourcing things, which they haven't yet, by the way. This is like by the end of the year. Um, and to uh, to show that it's real, to show that it's not like a, an empty political gesture. Uh, the other possibility is that, uh, and, and depending on how cynical you are, potentially the more likely possibility uh, is that Apple has a bunch of servers too. And I'm pretty sure Apple servers aren't a bunch of X servers at this point. Uh, and I'm sure Apple probably has more Swift code than any other corporation in the world at this point. In fact, pretty much guarantee that. One would hope. And they might want to run the same code or the same libraries on both their clients, which are iOS devices and Macs, and their servers, which presumably, again, are not X servers running OS X. So if Apple has Linux servers and Apple has devices that, you know, libraries that they make in Swift that can run on these devices, it would be nice if they could run Swift on the server because they actually happen to have servers. So I don't know the lineage of Swift for Linux, if it was always a thing inside Apple or if it came out of the open source effort. But I think the reason Apple has Swift for Linux is for their own use. Uh, and that's not why they're open sourcing. Open sourcing, again, is you know because they want the language to be bigger than just one company. But Swift for Linux being a thing really makes me think that they want to run or at least want to experiment with. Maybe it's not going to be a thing. Maybe it won't work out or whatever. But at the very least... It's something they want to try internally, uh, and it makes perfect sense for them because, uh, you know, when we talk about the web browser, if you're if you're a Google, it might make sense to run job. Well, I don't think they run JavaScript on the server side either. Maybe they do, but anyway, having libraries that run in everyone's browsers and being able to not, not having to duplicate that code on the server side. And if Apple has a bunch of libraries that run in everybody's phones that do some operation or whatever, it would be nice not to have to duplicate all that code on the server side, so you can do it both client and server side. So that is my tinfoil hat theory for swift for linux it is not out of the goodness of apple's heart does apple really ever do anything out of the goodness of their heart well open sourcing is is close pretty much as close as you can get because that you could argue like and i'm sure they had this argument in apple like does it really benefit apple uh it'll say oh yeah we'll have more eyes on swift and more people using it and if if swift becomes the next really popular language and it's you know, adopted everywhere. That's good for us because Swift will become better the more people use it. All of that is true, but the counter argument is: well, Objective C technically was not like Apple proprietary, but really we're the only one using it and interesting, and, and that seemed to work out fine for us. It's not like we suffered by the world not hacking on Objective C for us, even though they could have been in theory. So what's the big deal? Swift can be proprietary Apple language. We don't care if the world adopts it. We only care if Apple and Apple developers adopted, and that's fine. Um, so, but open sourcing, like the, the all all the arguments against that, eventually stray into altruism, and 
you know, sort of the the new we didn't talk about this the new message at the bottom of apple's press releases did you guys read that no did i read the footer of a press release hmm. <laughs> uh, it used to be apple ignited the personal computer revolution with the apple II and blah 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 blah. then they took out the apple II and talked about the mac and then moved on to iphone and uh, the ipod like they change it's like a paragraph at the bottom of every press release that explains who the heck apple is and the current version i believe starts with the mac and then says iphone ipad blah 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 watch i don't know if it says watch anyway they added a bit that says, like, Apple employees are blah, 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 and dedicated to leaving the world better than they found it. Like, it's a Tim Cookism that is now added to the end <laughs> of that little paragraph. Leaving the world better than we found it. That's altruism. Like, it's not, you know, making the most money possible, increasing value for our shareholders, le- making the world better than we found it. That's all the, you know, diversity stuff, the renewable energy stuff, and, you know, maybe throw open sourcing Swift in there. So I'm, I'm not too cynical to believe that, you know, that that wording change and that add to you see it it comes from tim cook this is his he's putting his stamp on on the corporation and it's a stamp that i like yeah i will be interested to see like what comes of this you know like like does it get used at all or does it just kind of sit there in obscurity like apple's uh, other open source efforts mostly have uh and i uh, you know you got to figure like as a as a server side developer as a web developer as a services developer why would you choose to use this over something else and you know you're right like you know code sharing is a big part of it but again like until the library situation shakes out uh you know yeah like they said you know obviously like the swift standard library will be there but that's there's not a lot in the swift standard library (laughs) there's there's like a lot of things that almost every kind of app would need that uh or would would need like one of that don't exist there uh so that is going to be a problem and it's going to be a limitation for for a long time. Uh, so I think like, you know, you look at other languages that are out there that have more library or framework or community support behind them. Language and, and even languages that are cool and new and modern. If you if you want to throw node in there, you can. I will allow that temporarily. Um, I would also say things like, you know, Python and Java somewhat, uh, Go, Rust, you know, like the newer ones. Like, you know, they're... I won't even say PHP, but you know people know it, and there's a lot there. It is it's going to be a tough sell for people to 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 use Swift over this almost embarrassment of riches of other well established good web languages that have tons of libraries and great frameworks already, a huge community around them, finding bugs before they run it, before they hit you, uh, documenting things, making tutorials, writing books. Like there's there's so many. Uh, languages out there already that have great resources and great support behind them. Uh, I wonder if Swift will be able to get a foothold in that the way Apple is most likely to operate and with the limitations it's most likely to have, uh, especially in the area of libraries. And that, that I think, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, someone could always take it and run with it. Like, it's not just the, the website. Someone could use Swift as an alternative to C++ for the new thing they're making. I mean, I, I have no idea what Pebble's SDK is like or what it is. But, you know, like, say you're making some small device and you decide you don't want to use c++ to make you know you're going to be the one making the api in the framework maybe you want to use swift for it like the rust is you know it's the, those are the mozilla guys right they're they're using that as a better a, a memory safe alternative to c++ to do kind of the same type of job of c++ there it's not it's not just all about web apps you know the whole, again the whole thing with swift is it's supposed to be a language that can span from writing an operating system all the way up to you know they don't say this, but, you know, like it could be an alternative to JavaScript in the web browser from the lowest of the low level to the highest of the high level. 
Uh, and Swift, that's that's aspirational at this point. Uh, it's certainly aspirational because like no one has actually written an operating system in Swift and nobody actually has used Swift in a, in a web browser as an alternative to JavaScript, but it is expanding outward. And by open sourcing it, you're never going to be able to expand to fulfill your your uh, you know your aspirational uh, target if you don't open source as a prerequisite. And so you're right. It's, there are lots of barriers between here and there. But even in the worst case, the worst case is no one ever uses it except for Apple. At least then some poor Apple developer is going to have the ability to see the source code to the thing that's causing them a problem and maybe send a patch. Even if it happens only between a registered Apple developer and Apple, that's still better. Like how many Apple developers wouldn't kill to have the source code for AppKit and UIKit just so they could debug stuff sometimes, right? Um, so... I think there is no downside to open sourcing other than the resources they're going to have to spend to deal with the open sourcing. But those type, you know, I, I feel like you can hire people to do that. Uh, and it's kind of a fun job and they don't need to be multi-year experts to handle it. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me is um, Swift seems to be a language written by a compiler guy for kind of compiler guys. And for those, those sorts of people that really kind of get off on the, the nitty-gritty about a language. And that's not a bad thing at all. But if there was any audience or any any group or any way to target, you know, compiler men and women, then I would imagine that the Linux crowd is the way to do it. And so it very well may pique some interest in that in that uh in, in that circle. And certainly this is a group that loves, you know, having a new JavaScript framework every day. So who knows? Maybe somebody will decide, you know what, this is pretty cool and I'm gonna build my Swift framework. Um a question I wanted to ask the two of you guys do you think this is the beginning of the end of web objects? Was there a beginning of web objects? <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Of Apple's reliance. I think we're like we're we're like into phase seventeen of the end of web objects. It's just <laughs> it's a really long and I I don't see a bright future for web objects, but I know Apple has a lot of code written in it. Well, that's the thing. That's what I'm driving at is, you know, yes, I think we all, we can all agree that they want web objects to die in a fire, but I don't I I don't see any particular impetus or perhaps compulsion for them to get rid of it other than it being old and not well-supported technology. And if they're going all in on Swift across the corporation, then maybe that includes, you know, like the iTunes Music Store, among other things. Well, I don't think they're going all in. I think this is, you know, baby steps here. But like, I think the problem they have with web objects is, all right, what do we replace it with? And all the choices are things that Apple controls less. You, regardless of how much better you may believe they are than web objects, things that Apple controls less and you don't want to rewrite a bunch of working code and Apple unlike Google is not constantly thinking about how it can improve every aspect of all its web operations like there are key things that it is concentrating on and I think with good reason like hey how about CloudKit is a great example let's do CloudKit that is a big paid point although people may not uh, like web objects if you can click through our stores and buy stuff it's performing fine even if it's like defunct and not really being enhanced and doesn't have a bright future it's more important to uh, to concentrate on other things so so maybe long term they can like you know swift for linux they could try it out in some small application uh, uh server side thing and see if it works out like these are very early days but yeah like someone is staring at that web objects and going it's like you don't want it to end up like COBOL code where the only people who know how to deal with it at all are 60 years old and really expensive because they don't want to work anymore and you just let it go too far web objects is not at that phase yet um and who knows? Someone could resurrect it someday. You, you never know. Stranger things have happened. Well, but that, like the the talent aspect, I think might be a big part of this. Like, imagine you know, Apple already seems to have some issues uh, retaining talent. 
uh, because they're, they're you know the things they do are are uh, you know increasingly uh, you know they they have a, an increasing number of like boring things that have to be done uh, and there's so many other things like if you if you work at Apple you probably get an itch constantly to go make your own app like that I bet that's a big problem they have anyway so you know to help retain talent I think first of all or to help attract talent in the first place. If they're going to grow their their cloud services stuff, which they almost certainly are and almost certainly need to, they need to figure out how do we attract more programmers who want to work on this stuff. And if you think about the the prospects of a job where you're writing web objects code as the as the primary role of your job, not only are those people harder to find, but you know if you want to find somebody who has experience with it before, but also you're probably like if that's your job, that's not very interesting or cool to most people. And that's going to be. It makes it especially hard, probably, to hire young people. And and so, if they want to hire more people more easily to work on their cloud stuff and to have them be higher quality coders, higher you know who want to stay there longer and who are who you know are are going to choose that over some other job at Google or Facebook or whatever, uh, having it be in a modern, cool language that everybody wants to write code in, instead of an old language that has a pretty bad reputation that is, that is not really useful anywhere else that is hard to get experience in and is probably not the best language to work in these days when you when you are accustomed to more modern things uh, i think having swift on the back end and having this be available like that it, it could that that would be enough reason right there just for apple's own recruitment and retainment efforts that would be enough reason to do this yeah all right what else is cool these days our final sponsor this week is Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you will actually like. So with Igloo, you can share news, you can organize your files, you can coordinate calendars and manage projects all in one place on your corporate intranet or your group intranet. So Igloo is like taking the best of the web and productivity apps. They have you know calendars, they have Twitter-like microblogging, file sharing, task management, wikis, document annotations, and more, all available privately and securely for your company or group. Uh, Igloo intranets are highly functional, stylish, and easy to use with a widget-based drag-and-drop interface. Now, their latest upgrade, Viking, revolves around documents and how you interact with them, gather feedback, and make changes. So they have a couple of cool features here. First of all, they can you can have a, basically read receipts for documents. You can track who has read critical documents, critical information to keep everybody on the same page. Uh, this You can do this, for example, to track whether employees have read and acknowledged new policies, signed off on legal agreements, confirmed completion of training materials, all sorts of possible uh, professional and uh, regulatory uses here. And all this is built on their advanced HTML5 platform. And this is really advanced. It's fully responsive, first of all. Uh, so, you know, it works great on every device. Uh, computers, iPhones, Android phones, even Blackberries. Uh, and then... My what I, what I think is the most is the coolest part of this is all that they have all this like document previewing and document annotation. There's no flash any of that. It's all this document parsing code, all this document annotation code. That's all in HTML5. So you can do annotations. You can do you can view you know spreadsheets and stuff like that. You can do all that just on your phone if you want to, or just on your computer without having Flash installed, which is the devil. So <laughs> you really don't want Flash. Uh, and when new devices come out, new screen sizes come out, it just works on there. It is so great, so advanced. So if your company has a legacy intranet that looks like it was built in the 90s, like most corporate intranets do, you should definitely give Igloo a try. Now, what's even better is that if you have a group of 10 or fewer people to use it, it's completely free to use for as long as you want. 
So if your company is 10 or fewer people, or if you want to use it for like a group project or, you know, like a, a side thing, whatever you want to do, 10 people or fewer, it's free forever. And then when you get larger than that, it's very reasonably priced. So check it out today. Sign up for a free trial. See if it's right for you. igloosoftware.com slash ATP. Once again, igloosoftware.com slash ATP. Thanks a lot to Igloo for sponsoring our show once again. So, John, I hear you have thoughts about uh, protocol extensions. Protocol extensions are great, uh, but the protocol-oriented programming talk, like there's always a couple of weird talks at WWC like, that are structured as narratives or that have a framing device. Or, you know, and this was one of them. It's like a sing- single presenter. The framing device was like a, a hypothetical discussion between an old a cranky programmer and a young one and uh, used to demonstrate something. And the reason I find these interesting, I was also joking about it, dumping on it, but I find them interesting because... These are these talks at all WWC, but specifically these talks about like, uh, I'm going to tell you uh, the way uh, the way that we think you should use our language to make your programs better are aimed at an audience that's not me. It's aimed at people who (laughs) who develop iOS and Mac apps. It's aimed at like longtime Objective-C developers. It's aimed at people whose programming culture is very, very different than mine. Uh, And so sometimes that means the message goes past me. And sometimes it means that like, they're they're trying to the context is practices that i don't have and never had and they're trying to persuade me as hard as they can to not do this thing that i think is crazy and would never do anyway or vice versa tell me to do something that seems alien to me and then try to convince me that it's good and so protocol extensions was trying to show all the sort of uh traps that you can run into not in an explicit way but like you're used to doing this in Objective C, and these these problems uh, are why Objective C is the way it is. Like, why do, why are there delegate patterns all over Objective C? Well, because inheritance has these problems, or so on and so forth. And a lot of the stuff, this is the one that gets me the most. A lot of the stuff, both having to do with Swift and Objective C and everything at WWC, uh, focuses heavily on types. And if you use a language that does not have uh, that has dynamic typing. Uh, where you don't worry about types, you don't worry about matching type signatures. You don't. That's like that's not even a thing. A lot of the stuff that is super important to people who deal with languages with types is irrelevant. Like it's one of the things people talked about the the Gang of Four Patterns book. Like a lo- there was an article about it years ago when the Patterns book first came out. Someone had the epiphany after reading the Patterns book. You know what? A lot of this crap is totally irrelevant to me because I don't use C++ or Java or any other strongly typed language. Like a lot of these patterns exist so that you can make your program flexible in this way, but maintain static type safety everywhere. And if your your language doesn't even have static type safety, you're like, well, that pattern makes no sense. You know how I do that pattern? I just do this and I don't have to worry. It works all the time. I don't need seven versions of this. I don't need a concrete and abstract implementation i don't i don't need protocol extensions so the types smack it up all the all the problems they described in the protocol extensions thing like a lot of those just don't exist in languages like javascript where you just don't have to worry about that right maybe es6 that'll be a problem or whatever um, so that's one aspect of it and the second one is i'm heartened to see ideas from the crazy highfalutin mumbo jumbo languages that i use uh and even from things from Perl 6 and stuff, filtering down to the uh, troglodytes who use these languages with pointers and stuff, or, or Swift, where you have, you know, <laughs> unsafe, unmanaged, uh, hose myself by scribbling over my... Anyway, uh, the lower-level languages. Uh, and I think the idea that was sort of, from my perspective, the idea that was buried in, in the uh, pro- protocol R&D programming language thing was the idea of traits, which I think were from Smalltalk, roles in Perl parlance, uh, uh, another a better managed alternative to sharing code 
uh, sharing interface and code without screwing with your inheritance hierarchy, without forcing data to be shared, without doing all the other stuff. So it was a talk that just seemed very alien to me. Uh, but everyone who saw who, who was in the correct audience, you know, who was this talk was meant for them, seemed to like it. And it seemed to open their eyes to the possibility of how they can program differently in Swift and how Swift attempts to solve problems uh the same problems that Objective-C solved by sort of skirting them, Swift has a different way to, to, to take the same approach. So I hope people watch that session and come away with uh, new ideas about how they can structure their programs to satisfy all their their uh, their languages' uh, static type constraints and new ways to share functionality and interfaces without inheritance and without uh, a million delegates everywhere. <laughs> now, this is one of those talks that I, I was in as well, and... I enjoyed it a lot, although the framing, whatever, was a little bit weird. Krusty, the old programmer, I think was the was the character they used. But anyway, um, the talk was very good, but it's one of those that I feel like I need to go back and watch it again because it didn't entirely sink in. And I think that's partially because I, I too, am not necessarily the right audience because I don't live and breathe Objective-C every day. Um, but there were a lot of things, and I've said this about uh, Swift in the past, there's a lot of things that they talked about um, that reeked of C-sharp-style implementations of the same idea. Like um, protocol extensions smelled a lot like extension methods to me. And I'm sure they're different in nuanced ways that I'm not considering as I'm talking, but but they, they seem very similar. And so I think that I, I'd like to re-watch this and perhaps consider what 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 patterns I can apply to even my C-sharp code that, that maybe... I can I can be inspired by from this talk, but it was very interesting. And, and like I said earlier, just about anyone who has seen it has said, "Wow, that was really cool," and and you should definitely see it. And and I I concur. So I don't know, Marco. Any thoughts? You're you're probably the target audience more than anyone. Did you see this one? I didn't do my homework, of course. Well, I didn't. To be fair, I didn't do it since I got home. I just happened to be in that talk when we were there. No, I I, I have also heard from everybody that I have to see this talk, and so I, it is on my list of talks to watch. But I have not watched it yet. Yeah, and protocol extensions are separate from this protocol oriented. The protocol extensions are are mostly uh, people in the chat room are saying extensions are like uh, categories. Swift has always had extensions. Protocol extensions allows you to extend protocols, which previously you couldn't do. If you look at the Swift standard library and see all the different things they had to do to make things that are like, well, this is equatable and sortable, and this inherits from that, and this. Uh, conforms to this like to try to make just their basic types of like you know arrays and dictionaries and ints and all the other things that they want to work with all their map and sort things again problems don't exist if you don't have types it's like well how can we have this that works a generic form of that and that and trying to get away from all the angle bracket t generic thing that was making swift look all super ugly oh good i hate those yeah well that and like the standard library itself because that's that's probably the the biggest source of Swiss code, uh, Swift code in the world at this point, as far as we know, is the Swift standard library itself, because all that stuff, uh, all their hashes and dictionaries and ints and all, so that's all written in Swift. That's their standard library, right? Uh, and having map and filter and all those other things work on all the different types and also on your extensions of those types and your subcategories of types and also enums and structs, which can also have methods. It's really complicated. And in writing the Swift standard library, they ran into all of the, I'm assuming, they ran into all of the part, the, the ways that the language is making things annoying. I mean, anyone who's done any sort of large object-oriented program has inevitably found themselves in a situation where 
either you start wishing for multiple inheritance or the flip side, you start <laughs> using it. And in both cases, you have regrets, right? Like, you're like, oh, but I need this needs to be that and that needs to be that. And really, there's no way to arrange this hierarchy of this. So that I'm going to have this if I have these multiply inherited, but I want this, but I need to override that over there. But this needs to come from over here. Like you make a mess, you know, because you don't foresee everything. You end up making a mess. That's uh, that's an anti-pattern that anyone in any object-oriented language has experienced. And I feel like Apple must have experienced that doing the standard libraries. Like, oh, well, we need everything to be sortable and equatable and and we need them to, to be able to be mapped from one thing to the other. Uh, but, uh, you know, th- we want all the types to match up. We want people to be able to extend it, but then to have their extended versions also work with all the built-in things. And you end up, it's a really complicated problem. Uh, and protocol extensions give them one more vector for sharing that like they'll define these protocols that don't affect the inheritance hierarchy and then you can extend the protocol so then everything that conforms to the protocol gets your extension it's different than doing a category where you're like oh now all instances of ns string have this method you can have like all instances of things that are equatable have this new extension right and that's that is a powerful feature that uh i think a lot of people wanted when they saw swift one and i think the, the people who probably wanted it the most were the people writing the swift standard library and i think this probably made their <laughs> life a lot easier and then the protocol oriented programming is like hey protocols period like you can share code by instead of just making a series of subclasses and making a big inheritance hierarchy you can have this this unit of code you can have like you know the java interface that has no code and that's powerful and then you can uh you can share uh those implementations and override them among any classes like you're not it's not part of the inheritance hierarchy everything you can make all your different things uh conform to this protocol and then when someone extends the protocol they've enhanced all the things that uh i keep trying to use Perl parlance the Perl parlance they're their roles and classes consume them which sounds weird and gross but it's nice to have a distinct word for it so yeah everybody who consumes this role now i guess the advantage there are there are no role extensions in Perl, and i was thinking like oh why don't we have role extensions and then i thought about it for a while and i think it's probably because we don't need them because you would just you can, you know, Perl's like Ruby. You can do whatever the hell you want. We stick methods. We stick methods <laughs> in any class we want. We screw with the inheritance hierarchy at runtime. It's it's the wild west. Uh, but anyway, uh, it, it's an Sounds interesting. Sounds awesome. Talk. Yeah, it is. It is. It is pretty awesome. <laughs> it's better than Ruby. Ruby did mixins, which is just like you know what? Here's some methods. Bam, they're in your class. Oops, did I overwrite something? Sorry about that. Roles, at least when your class <laughs> when your class consumes them. It will tell you if there's, you know, a class at class composition time, it consumes the roles and it will tell you you can't consume those roles. They conflict in this, this and this. Right. And roles can also make requirements of the classes that consume them. You can consume me, but you need to implement methods X, Y and Z. Otherwise, you know, and and that having that happen at class composition time is way better than the Ruby thing where you just keep loading Ruby modules until like the the the, the integer class. Uh, 17 people fighting over the method that's called like whatever inverse or first or like happy birthday or whatever the hell people are shoving into you know and they just silently overwrite each other and you know so it's a more formalized system of non-inheritance based uh, interface and code sharing anyway uh cool stuff swift 2 looks really good tell you one thing i'm honestly very glad i haven't learned swift yet because like they, they keep adding these they first of all they keep changing things and they keep adding really cool things and uh Honestly, like if you have a large body of Swift code, um, that to me seemed more like a liability at this point. Even though they have, you know, they have like some of the translation tools and everything, but like I, I would rather come to Swift with a totally clean mind and no existing code 
once it has stabilized a little bit more. I was gonna say, I don't think your mind is entirely clean with all that PHP in there, but uh, <laughs> <No>. that, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like you know, like I, I don't have any existing knowledge of Swift really. That's any that's of any use. I don't have any like built any like Swift assumptions or Swift design habits. I've already started getting into. Like so, when I do start using Swift, it'll be from a clean slate, as if. That was version 1.0 of the language. Well, it's nice to... I think the people who have used Swift 1 and run into all these problems, A, they appreciate the Swift 2 features more. It's like, oh, God, I've been fighting that for, you know, a long time in Swift 1. It's great to see it in Swift 2. And B, I think it will help you understand the features of the language. If you haven't fought with all the foibles of Swift 1, it may not be clear why certain features in Swift 2 exist um so i i think experience is is still useful but like uh, what, I, what i wanted to get it was the point you brought up of like the what is the strategy they said this from the very beginning of Sw- the strategy of swift is they're going to make swift and they said and we're going to change the language uh in ways that are just entirely incompatible with the swift code you're writing now furthermore that swift code that you wrote last year that's not even going to compile anymore like, not only is, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, my app is written in Swift 1. No, it's not. If you want to ship your app, it cannot be written in Swift 1 because Swift 1 will not build in the new version of Xcode. Their entire strategy at this point anyway is we will take your Swift 1 code and convert it to Swift 2. And that's, that's they've been saying that from the start. They don't guarantee source compatibility, which means their compiler will not compile your Swift 1. Uh, they don't care about your Swift 1. you got to convert it to Swift 2, which is very aggressive. Um, and like, you know, all the work they did with the compiler infrastructure and Xcode and the integration between them and the static analyzer allows them to have a conversion thing that does this in a sensible way and does most of the work for people. It's still kind of annoying though. Um, but I'm not entirely sure this is a long-term strategy. Okay. So Swift one to Swift two, Swift two to Swift three at a certain point, Swift 16 to Swift 17. Are you really going to invalidate what hope, what Apple would hope is the millions of lines of Swift 16 code that are out there when you change to Swift 17? No, it's got to end at some point. Uh, so I don't know what point that is, but for now, the policy is not only, Marco, might you have been wasting your time writing in a language and learning idioms that are going to change when the next version of Swift comes out, but you'd also have the task of converting all of your Swift 1 code to Swift 2. Like, it's not even an option to keep the Swift 1 code around. Um, and I think that will continue until the language reaches the point where Apple's like, all right, this is settling down. Now we'll start to, I hope, they'll start to treat it like a regular language where we don't invalidate your Objective-C code when Objective-C 2.0 comes out when they started versioning Objective-C. We try to encourage you to move to 2.0. The 64-bit runtime is 2.0 only, blah, 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 blah. But your old code will keep building for a really long time. We did, They didn't force you to constantly convert all, up-convert all your code. And they kept it backward compatible. Whereas Swift one, like they changed some of the keywords, like do became repeat. Like this, you know, this, they'll change anything they want. And now do means something else. Yeah. Now, now it basically means try. No, there's try inside the do. There's there's, there's a Yoda joke in there somewhere, but I cannot get it out. Um, <laughs> that's a reference to something, Casey. That's, that's Star Trek, right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. next generation. It, this is this is a thing to watch for when when Apple thinks Swift has finally settled down. When they stop doing the thing, the thing that they always said they were going to do, they just never said how long they're going to do it for. It just seems like something that is not sustainable long term. But certainly for Swift one, two, and presumably next year Swift three, uh, they'll probably keep it down. Maybe four, maybe five, maybe five. It settles down. But that's something to keep an eye on. But anyway, I I love seeing this this aggressive strategy of like not doing the old Microsoft thing of like, well, you can't break people's old apps and you can't, you know, their source code has to compile and work exactly like it always did. Apple's like, no, we are racing forward as fast as we can. You better come along for the ride. 
And that's great. I mean, like, there are so many languages that get, you know, in, you know, kind of unfortunate cruft, like, almost immediately after they're launched because they don't do that. Uh, and because they have, you know, developers instantly who are like, well, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to tolerate you breaking the code we wrote for this two month old language last, you know, last month. Uh, and Apple's willing to say, yes, we'll break it and we'll, we'll try to make it easy on you by having these translation tools. But that's it. Uh, that, it's going to end up being a really good language in all likelihood. Uh, I, I think uh, even even the Swift two changes, you know, just it, the changes they've made since last year, since one point You know, they did a number of updates over the winter and the spring, and and uh, they they changed some pretty big things. And uh, now, you know, with with the officially officially named Swift two, which seems kind of more like Swift one point five, but whatever. Uh, you know, with all that, uh, they've made some really big improvements since one last year. And yeah, you're right. It's going to slow down. That's fine. And I'm totally fine to jump on when it slows down. And you know, a lot of people, you know, some of the people in chat are saying, and I've heard from a lot of people, like, don't you want to be part of this process? Don't you want to, like, help direct the language, you know, with your input and and get used to it now and become an expert in it now? And the answer to all of those is, no, I don't. Like, I really don't. You know, first of all, uh, I I think there's there's like this this division of programmers like there's people who are really into the tools for their own sake and the science of the tools and and the the design of languages the design of tools that is like the 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 art behind the language design and then there's other people who who don't really care about that and just want to use it and they get satisfaction out of the things they build with it rather than necessarily the way they build them I own the latter. Uh, I do not care about languages really much at all. Uh, that's why I try to I try to learn as few languages as possible and and choose to really deeply master them rather than uh, exploring tons of languages that comes that come out and being uh, shallowly familiar with lots of them. And and in some ways that does hurt me. I think overall I think I'm making the right decision for what I'm trying to accomplish, which is one person trying to write like complete apps and you know and write and maintain complete apps that, that do non-trivial things. Um, I, I think my way is, is better for that approach. But there are so many people who care so much about the language and how it's designed and what it can do and how it does it uh, that they are willing to jump on early and they are willing to tolerate all of the all the bumps and the source kit crashes and the changes in the, in the in the syntax and the changes in the idioms and things they're willing to do that that's great we need them to exist but i don't need to be one of them and i'm and i'm perfectly fine with that and i i appreciate what they do and they probably think i'm an idiot but that's fine yeah i agree i i don't care about being a trailblazer anymore and you've talked about this a lot marco just now on build and analyze yeah being a trailblazer when it's something that is important when money is riding on it. That's just not my cup of tea. I'd rather use the, the old and boring technology, not as old and boring as PHP or Perl, but old and boring <laughs> technology that is well-proven and actually works well. Um, and, and occasionally I'll fiddle, like something that's fun and on the side, like my website, for example. Node is reasonably stable as JavaScript frameworks that change every 10 seconds go. Right, as long as your integers stay small and you don't need, uh, and you have a lot of memory, then right, you're good. Then no problem. Um, but that's not something that I'm really making any money off of. It's just my silly little website. You know, I don't think I would be as keen on using Node if this was the sort of thing where where money is, is relying, or money is riding on what I'm doing. So... I'm with you. I don't 
I don't get the architecture astronaut, like, you know, uh, total, I don't know, just, I don't get off on that. Like I used to, when I was a kid, it's just not my thing anymore. Pearl is far from boring, boring Casey. One thing, it's one thing you can say for Pearl. It's not boring. I would say the same thing for PHP. PHP is far from boring. It's perhaps the most exciting language ever made because it's terrifying. Every second, <laughs> we'll sell you the whole Aeron, but you only need the edge. Oh, God. All right. I think that wraps it up for this week. Thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week. Automatic, Squarespace, and Igloo. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental Accidental. Oh, it was accidental Accidental. John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental Accidental. Oh, it was accidental Accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them E-Y-L-I-S-S, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. I think language wonk is the phrase you're looking for, not architecture. Astronaut. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't think of what it was. Thank you. Uh, right, well, the architecture astronauts—they're all working on Java and PHP. Yeah, oh God, that's, that's true. PHP got so badly infected by Java people, it drives me nuts. Yeah, but anyway, I am a language wonk. I like this language stuff. Hell, I, anyone who who knows about the existence of and loves Perl six is definitely a language wonk. I mean, I don't have a problem with language wonkery, if such a thing is how you would describe it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, that's I, can, it. I, I, um. I enjoy learning about Swift, but goodness, would I would I never consider that using that, at least right now. I think you guys hit the nail on the head that the right time to use Swift is when the velocity of Swift kind of calms down a little bit. Maybe it doesn't, you know, stop moving forward or anything, but it just calms down. Now is not that time. Well, now might be that time, honestly. Yeah, I, I think I think it's close to that time like because next year like all right so they, we didn't even talk about the error handling but anyway they got all error handling stuff was there was a bunch of things that were obviously missing from swift one and one of them was how do you deal with errors because in out params and ns error and all that crap was like ugly it did look it was it looked like a and was a thing that existed and fit in with the objective c language and app kit and all that stuff it wasn't a good fit for swift so now you've got their whole don't really call it exceptions because it's not really an exception but kind of exception handling in swift 2 that filled a big gap uh obviously i still want regular expressions uh maybe just copy, of course just copy pearl six grammars and you'll be done um you got to save something for next year uh but <laughs> but but yeah like and now and now people looking at swift 2 it's all right what's left besides that the stuff that i just mentioned now the picture is becoming clear and then the final thing that i think you're missing is all right who's going to be the first sucker to write uh a swift only framework uh, or like to use Swift in in earnest, so that like because all the APIs you're calling from Swift are you know UI Kit, App Kit, things that were written originally in Objective C, and they've tried so hard to make it so that you can do things in a Swifty way, not knowing that there is you know an NS error parameter going in there. Like that's lots of magic having to do with bridging those two worlds. Eventually, you're gonna have to decide 
what does if you were to write a framework now starting from scratch and swift what would that look like right uh we don't know the answer to that but that's like the final piece of the puzzle and after that it's just uh, just a matter of time so swift 2 swift 2.5 the dawning of swift 3 i think that is probably the sweet spot for maybe not for marco but i think for most people doing you know if you're not a one-person shop and you have to like make decisions based on like you don't have people like oh this guy can go off and he'll just learn swift this year and he'll teach it to the rest of us marco doesn't have that option uh but that's a reasonable time frame and if you want to be on the cutting edge or you're young or you're coming in like say you're going to write your very first application and you're just out of school that's the perfect time to learn swift because you don't know objective c there's no point in becoming objective c expert right now right you might as well just go right into swift so Marco's decisions, as always, are not necessarily applicable to everyone listening. Oh, no. And that's like, and <laughs> somebody asked me on Twitter, I think two or two or three days ago, like, you know, I'm just starting out. Should I learn? Should I start with Swift? And I said, yeah, probably. Because I think, yeah, if you're starting from scratch right now, a year ago, I, I had a much more complicated, like, well, it depends. Maybe this year, you know, I'm, I'm saying almost certainly, yes, you should start with Swift. Like, if you're starting from scratch now, start there. Uh, but you know, but if you if you already are an Objective C expert and you're trying to get a lot of work done quickly, it's hard to justify making the transition right now, as opposed to you know in a year or two. I mean, but you should think back to your Go experience. Like you had the same thing. Like, well, is it worth learning a new language? What are the benefits? And you you have to speculate. What is going to be the the you know risk reward? Like what? What is the expected benefit of me spending this time to use Go? Is it really going to make that much difference, or I'm just going to waste a bunch of time fighting with language I don't know that well and end up with something with a bunch of bugs? And I think the Go experiment worked out pretty well for you, but going in, you don't know for sure. I think the uncertainty about Swift when it first came out was seriously, Apple is this a thing? Are you really going to do this? Like people didn't <laughs> didn't really believe. Uh, maybe people who don't have a lot of experience with Apple, like no, they're deadly serious, right? It could still be a disaster. Like there's still room for disaster, but. So far, signs are good that it's not going to be entirely a disaster, and Apple seems very dedicated to it. I don't know if we talked about this in the last show, but uh, we did in the pre-WWDC. So, hey, do you think we're going to see Swift on all the slides or Objective-C and Swift? And I think I said I thought it would be a mix. I think this year's WWDC, Apple tried very hard to make all of their examples use Swift. They, they failed. There were plenty of sessions with Objective-C in some or all of the examples. Some of them were exclusively Objective-C. But you could see the effort. It was like, wow, I'm surprised at the amount of Swift I'm seeing, and I'm shocked at how little Objective-C I'm seeing. Again, Apple can do that. That's, you know, top-down command and control. It's their conference. Uh, but they're clearly signaling their intent. Swift is the future, you know, unless something super terrible happens. Yeah, in all the sessions I went to, I only noticed one, and I don't recall which one it was, that actually had Objective-C in it. And everything else either had both, or in more cases than than not, uh, only had Swift, which was relatively surprising to me that it was that quick. But you're right, John, that they're pushing it, and they're pushing it hard. Yeah, just download all the WWC PDFs and search them with square brackets. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find out how many sessions actually had... Uh, what, uh, what was one of the ones? Was it uh, Metal or what's new in sprite kit or something some one of the sessions I, I went to seemed to not have any swift it was just square brackets square brackets it was like going back in time you realize how how many of the other sessions are just like they don't even mention it they're just like oh and here's this code and here's this and here's this it's, it's amazing they've done this they made a new language suited for a new api with totally new idioms but still able to call into all the old stuff 
with you know with all these conventions and all this crazy markup they're doing to objective c oh and they added generics to uh objective c so you could have typed collections mostly to benefit swift so they could tell that your nsra is full of ns strings and they don't have to like make it full of any object in the swift world right but hey even if you're just in objective c marco you could use the new generics thing if you feel like it it's gonna make you feel better about knowing that you have a homogenous set of uh objects inside your array instead of god knows what yeah, no, that when when I when I saw that, uh I was very happy with that. I mean, again, like I'm probably going to start writing Swift code in the next year or two, uh like with majority of my effort. Uh but you know, it, until then, uh and while I still have this fairly large Objective-C code base, uh that's very good to have. You know, like I, I when when Swift came out, it it became pretty clear that like, you know, like almost every year before that they were adding interesting features to Objective-C. Uh, and then w- when Swift came out last year and they added basically nothing to, to Objective-C, it, it, the writing seemed like it was on the wall that, well, I guess that's the end of this language's progress. And, you know, obviously I think we're we are close to the end of this language's progress. Uh, but I think this is a nice little thing that, okay, well, even though it was in the service of making Swift interact better with this language, this language still is improving. And that is nice. The things they added to Objective-C before you knew Swift were exist- existed, almost all of those were also in service of Swift. In hindsight, we now realize. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Why does ARC exist? You know, what, that's the way memory management is done in Swift instead of garbage collection. Like they, or like, uh, like test beds for things that would be necessary in Swift. Or even just like if you want to go, we just talked about, how do we convert your Swift 1 code to Swift 2 code? static analyzer lvm like the compiler infrastructure all those things like boy this is great they're really enhancing objective c uh you know you can draw a line through all those changes and say hmm this was all leading to make swift possible and if you look at the timeline uh, you know some of it might have been happy accidents but some of it is clearly intentionally like i'm doing this for swift but it's going to be revealed to the world as an objective c slash compiler feature uh you know so that's well keep in mind also that apple still has the vast majority of their code in objective c uh it it was not even like i I mean we were even hearing like not that long ago that their build system couldn't even include swift yet like their standard build procedure couldn't even do swift yet as of fairly recently uh it probably can now i assume but uh the fact is like apple has probably the largest collection of objective c code in the world and they, you know, anything that benefits Objective-C benefits Apple. And, you know, so they, you know, all these features, static analyzer, stuff like that, like anything that helps Objective-C coding get more efficient and have fewer bugs, they could have just been doing for that. And, you know, I think it is. So that's how you sell the features. Because it's like, uh, I have a Skunk Works project that seven people know about on a new language. I uh, Here's what the new language needs. And it's like, well, okay. Uh, how do you sell that? Well, even if my new language ends up bust, these are all great things for Objective-C, so we should just do them anyway. And it's like, all right, keep going, keep going. It's just how you strategically pick the things you're going to enhance an Objective-C. Hmm, they all seem to... And and they had to get rid of garbage collection, which, by the way, is finally deprecated. Oh, is it? It wasn't already? Not not deprecated, uh, removed, as in you're, you can't... As in, like, the runtime doesn't support it anymore? I'm pretty sure it either won't run or you can't build new ones with a new version of Xcode or both. Uh, but basically, it's the end of uh, garbage collection. The supported life of garbage collection is now over. It's been deprecated for years, right? Yeah. What else is going on? Programming. More of it. <laughs> that's that's going on. I'm just saying that's that was, that's that was this episode. Uh, every once in a while, we do this. 
And we always get angry email. And people people will have to endure it. But guess what? WWC is a conference for developers, and we are all developers, even if not all for the same platform. And so it's impossible to soak in a week's worth of sessions about programming and not talk about programming. So we did. 